0: You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. This is Five Things That Make Life Better. You know, I sometimes forget I have a Spotify account when I want to listen to music. The good news is when I want to listen, the entire possible library of music is right here wherever I am. The days of lying on my tummy listening to the record player, reading the liner notes, memorizing the lyrics, tracing the cover art. Those days are sadly over. I have other things to do. But the joy of listening to music is always with me. Well, my guest today probably has heard himself described as legendary. It is Peter Asher, who's now a CBE commander of the British Empire. He was Pete. He's the Peter of Peter and Gordon, the pop duo of the 60s. And when his sister Jane Asher started dating Paul McCartney, Peter Asher's story became intertwined with Paul's, Sir Paul's now. McCartney wrote Peter and Gordon's first hit, which was an international number one song, A World Without Love. And Eventually, Peter went on to become Apple Records' first head of A&R, which stands for Artist and Repertory. He, as that, discovered singers like James Taylor and became his producer and manager and produced and managed Linda Ronstadt and basically produced records for everybody. And then he was a record executive and he's had just a fantastic career in music. And you will love his stories. Now, by the time you hear this podcast, I think two out of three exhibits will be home for the holidays with the rest of them en route to me. I long to have my kiddies here under the roof for a week or so. That's what I'm thinking about now. So, here are my five great things du semaine, de la semaine. Number one, having all our kids home together. You know, I see it coming, and I see it with rose-colored glasses, because there will be some disagreeableness. There will be some problem with who was supposed to do what, or did I forget to... Did I say something wrong? I will say something wrong. I won't try to say something wrong. It's just something I might do or could do or will do. And also there's a baby involved, and that's a bonus. I got such a kick out of buying baby food for my son's son. So that's number one. Number two, last Friday we went to a dinner party at the house of a couple we've just begun to know. And it was such a fun dinner party. Jan and Alan said, are we going to make your top five? And yeah, of course. I mean, it was a festive group and we stayed till midnight and the food was out of this world. And it's always such a nice surprise to be with people you don't really know and end up feeling like you've made new friends. So that made my week better. Number three, Jojo Rabbit, a new film. Have you seen this odd but wonderful movie yet? It's made by the filmmaker, I think you pronounce his name, Taika Waititi. He is from New Zealand. He wrote and directed The Hunt for the Wilder People, you may have seen. And Jojo Rabbit is a picaresque movie about a little German boy who lives with his mother during World War II in Germany. And he's obsessed by the Nazis. And he spends his day... Uh, emulating them at a kind of training camp for children, which I think were real things. He's a sensitive child, and he misses his dad, who may be fighting for the Germans in another country. And his older sister died from influenza. So Jojo conjures up an imaginary friend who is Adolf Hitler. That's right. Played as a petulant and immature bully by Waititi himself. Now, Waititi is Jewish, so he sort of takes it to a different place. You don't feel the same offense, I think, that you would feel if he were not. I'm still processing all the ways the movie made me feel, which tells you that it's a movie that's worth seeing. At least it says it to me. My dad was born in Germany and had to escape the Nazis, and I found this movie very worthwhile. Number four, I'm cleaning my office. It's a work in progress, and I hate the work, but I love being organized, and soon it will be a place of pride where I can write something terrific, I hope. And number five, last week in a moment of discouragement, and you know, like a lot of people, they just sort of happen sometimes. Without warning, you just feel crummy And then out of the blue, I received a couple of letters from some of you listeners telling me how much this podcast means to you and reflecting back some of the things that you heard from our guests and and from me. And, you know, we all need validation sometimes. We don't feel confident. We wonder what we're doing. And when I get feedback from you, I feel like this is not some elaborate vanity project or waste of time. And I am so grateful to you. Coming up, the charming Mr. Peter Asher. Don't go away. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. I wish I could do this whole show in a British accent because I feel (laughs) as if I'm surrounded and saturated by the British invasion. They're coming, they're coming, and they're here because Peter Asher is with me. He's an old friend, and he is also a friend of the Beatles. His new book is The Beatles from A to Z, and he is also on tour with his wonderful show, which I saw last week called Peter Asher a musical memoir of the 60s which is a must see intimate it's like having a documentary on stage intimate and humble right there in front of you the man who discovered Mary Hopkin and James Taylor and who managed Linda Ronstadt who just won her Kennedy Center award well deserved and Peter also hosts a a show on Sirius XM. Yes, indeed. Sirius XM on the Beatles channel. The Beatles channel, from me to you. Yep. And you were there every time at the creation of. I mean, you are really the zealot of pop music. Well,
1: not quite, but yes, I was there. From time to time, I did get to be there, uh, you know, for one reason or another, uh, when some interesting stuff happened and some great songs were written and so on. But I was by no means omnipresent. But thank you very much. No, but I you... I like the zealot yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: good. Now, you were the oldest child of three in yep. a well-to-do home in, well, we say house. If we're going to be you. Yeah. In a well-to-do house in London, your father was a doctor. Your mother was a classical musician. Yes. And one thing led to another. I didn't know about the child acting.
1: Yeah, I started doing that when I was eight, my very first film. And as I mentioned in the show, the exciting thing for me was my mother, and the first film I ever made was played by Claudette Colbert.
0: Who smelled so good. Who smelled so
1: good. I got to kiss her, and she smelled delicious. (laughs) I I remember it to this day.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you and your sisters were sort of marketed as these authentic redhead kids, these adorable redhead kids. That's right. How is it that your parents were keen on your having an acting career as I children? I think they were—they were more
1: tolerant than keen. I mean, we were just in the park one day. I think in this agent lady. Uh, named Valerie Glynn, uh, approached my mother and said, you know, that your, your children look good and have you ever thought about, you know, letting them do any acting? Or, I, th- I mean, I'm sure at the time it was because we were equally graded in height and we all had this bright red hair, which was quite distinctive. And, and I, I imagine the agent had in mind some kind of giant paying TV commercial <laughs> for some kid's <laughs> product or uh-huh. something, you know, that all three of us would be in. And in fact, that never happened. But each of us did get some work as actors, which I still do very occasionally. But my sister Jane took to with a vengeance and was really good at and quit school, which again must have required particular tolerance on my parents' part. I was thinking about that. The more I think back, the more I look back, the fact that she said, I don't need to go to school, I'm going to be an actor and left at 15. You know, and I quit university a year into my philosophy degree um, because I had a number one record and left for America. So, I hate and when they, that they, happens. <laughs> they, <laughs> took, they took it all with great equanimity.
0: Not only that, when your sister Jane became the girlfriend of Paul McCartney, your parents invited Paul eventually to move into your house.
1: Yes, not with Jane, I hasten to it. Not with but, Jane. But, but, but they did give him... He was... In our house a lot for meals and whatever and hanging out. So in the end, yes, they offered him the guest room on the top floor of the house, which was next to my bedroom. And he accepted and lived with us for two years.
0: I mean, that is incredible in itself. The fact that he was the number one recording artist in the world, or the Beatles were, yes, and that he took refuge in a proper family house yeah, Rather I, I, than stay with his bandmates and or or yeah. live in a huge hotel suite.
1: Yeah, they had a, the the band had a flat, you know, right. A, but it was a a four guy flat. It was chaos, and I think Paul quite liked this sort of kind of more structured environment of our household. It did take a bit of evasive action from time to time because obviously it was to no one's advantage for everyone to know that that's where he lived. So right. My father actually, who was quite an eccentric and brilliant man. um, was the one who figured out a way across the roof to a neighbor's house, two doors down, so that Paul could leave through their back door and arrive through their back door, so nobody realized he was there all the time. So occasionally, were um, girls, you know, fans outside the door, but not not uh, all the time by any means.
0: And and we know that when the Beatles really came over here that the Beatles and were on the Ed Sullivan show. And if you don't know what that is, and you're listening to mm-hmm. this podcast, you need to Google it right now. We know that girls went insanely hysterical yes. and chased them all over the world
1: yes they did and which of course it started to happen with Elvis so it was not like they invented that, right you know and we at the time had our Elvis this guy Cliff Richard right who was a giant star in England who's still girl, who's, who still is the giant yeah, star. yeah and, and all the girls were screaming at him but yes Beatlemania took that to a to a, a new height of insanity you know
0: and I seem to remember although I was a little young for this that that experts would go on television and talk about it as if it were an actual disease. Oh yes, well they
1: they did uh, about Beatlemania, and of course they did about rock and roll. Right. You know the, the, the concept was that rock and roll was going to destroy the nation's youth, and I'm happy to say that it did, and we were part of that. Yes, we, we enjoyed the destruction. Um, well, but it did. It changed things. You know, it, it, it rock and roll did make a difference, and and they weren't completely wrong in thinking this is going to, you know, affect the whole of society, because it kind of did. And it was meant to.
0: Well, one of the things about the rebellion of teenagers and rock and roll is that the term teenager wasn't even coined until after World War II.
1: That's right, yes.
0: Because adults, and again, those experts, were so afraid that... The boys were going to run ragged and be hoodlums because they had all been at war. And now what were they going to do?
1: That's true. Yes, exactly right.
0: They weren't going to listen to mom and dad anymore.
1: No. I mean, there was it, there was a real change. Because in the 50s, I mean, you, you tried to dress to look like your parents. You, know, right. you wanted to be a grown-up. Right. You know? And then uh, when it all changed, we were kind of going, we are not grown-ups. And we don't actually ever plan on becoming grown-ups. And some of us have kind of eff- effectively avoided becoming a grown-up to this day in yeah. some respects. You know? Yeah,
0: absolutely. I look at old yearbooks from the schools I went to. And the seniors in high school look older than me to this day. Exactly. With their bouffants and their pearls and so on.
1: Exactly. Exactly so.
0: Um, the Beatles went through so many changes in the short time that they were together. An Indian influence, for sure. That influenced all of music. Yes. Thereafter. Were you part of that? Did you go to India with no. them?
1: No, I did not, no. Uh, they all went. Uh, my sister Jane went. But uh, I did not go. Um I've, you know, I have actually, I've tried transcendental meditation. It never kind of really works. I'd sit there and. You know, half an hour later, I'm just bored, you know, and I feel guilty because it does work. You know, yeah, scientifically, it's proven to work, and and I wouldn't mind doing it at all. But I've never quite managed to catch on.
0: Now, was that it? Was only for the TM that the Beatles no, went to well, India?
1: Uh, I think so. They'd heard the Maharishi, I think, speak and right. were impressed. Uh, George, of course, took very much to the music as well. Particularly, they all did to some extent. But George Harrison made the effort to actually study it and learn to play the sitar and, right. and all all that stuff. So. Uh, I think it was is, it was the music and the and the philosophy kind of combined.
0: And did you regret that you didn't go there anyway with them? Not
1: really. No, not so much. I mean,
0: you were busy being Peter and Gordon. Yes, at that time. Yes, I and was you in. had a major recording and touring career. Yes. Of your
1: own. That's true. And and no, it didn't sound, when they described it, it didn't sound wonderful. didn't sound clean. No, it didn't sound clean. It didn't sound like the food was that good or anything, you know. You know, Ringo, who, who doesn't like spicy food anyway, took took a whole suitcase full of tins of baked beans with him. Oh, so, he did? Yeah, because he, so that he'd have something that he could understand and
0: eat without having to worry about the Indian food. Now, speaking of Ringo, your book, The Beatles from A to Z, is a true appreciation of him as a musician, and there was a um, something I'd heard or read that John, I think it was John Lennon, said, you know, any of us were better drummers than Ringo. It, it was
1: the, the famous quote, which I don't, I've never pinned down whether it's real or not. You know, mm-hmm. it was, Ringo wasn't even the best drummer in The Beatles. Was the, you know, better um, put, um, yes. Is what he said, I think. And it, yes. Of course, Paul McCartney is a good drummer, but... But uh, Ringo was, you know, he was the best drummer in the Beatles, and he also was the right drummer for the Beatles. He changed drumming forever because he wasn't flashy. You know, at the time, you, being a good drummer meant you were Gene Kruper or Buddy Rich. You could right. kind of go, blah, 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 and play these crazy fills. And, you know, and yell at people. <laughs> and, and, and yell at people separately, <laughs> yeah. which we found out later. Yeah. But, but, you know, a lot of drumming then was about showing off, and Ringo's drumming was never about showing off. That's why there's not a single Ringo drum solo, really. There's that one bit of a solo at the end of the medley, but but the, there's never like a, a gigantic really right. drum solo. That's really right. Right. And, and uh, he would actually design a drum part to to fit the song in consultation with the rest of the Beatles, but he would listen to the whole song properly and understand it and then figure out a drum part. Whereas most drummers even the great ones, some of them would just default to a regular boom boom chuck, boom, 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 chuck, assuming that's going to be it. Because right. half the time it is. But in Ringo's case, it hardly ever is. You know, he'll have a drum part, you know, like the beginning of Come Together or right. you know, all those drum parts that are very specific and quite unusual. And you can identify the song from the drum part, which, which in many cases with other drummers you could not. So to me it was a uh, an excellent player and a brilliant drum arranger as well you know and and the Beatles themselves all talked about when when he sat sat in with the band for the very first time it changed everything we suddenly went now we're really rocking you know he was great and is great still plays beautifully to this day and looks looks the looks virtually the same he's he's the healthiest and youngest looking of all of us
0: Wow now what is it when you talked about a fill A drum fill. Yeah. That was a term I learned in your book, but I've never heard of it before.
1: When the drum part stops being the regular boom, boom, chuck, and and there's a there's a bar or something that where the, the drums actually go flump, boom, but boom boom, and then back to the groove that 's a drum fill ah. it 's usually going in or out of a particular section of the song, an eight bar section or going into the bridge or or, or whatever coming out to the end of someone 's guitar solo they 'll often be a fill, and as I said, in some cases they 're designed in some cases like Keith moon or somebody they 're like just go crazy till, till till the end of the bar. until
0: <laughs> they're told to stop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And,
1: which is also brilliant, but in a different way.
0: So he's actually, Ringo is a fine musician in your opinion.
1: Yes, in my opinion, yes, absolutely.
0: Is that controversial or um, not really? And not
1: really, I don't think. And I think even Ringo... It took took a while to realize that that was the case. You know, he would be self deprecating, and and now he is less so, justifiably and correctly, a bit less so. I think he realizes, and partly because you talk to drummers, and they all talk about the influence of Ringo. Wow! You talk to drum drummer fans, and they may go, "Oh, it's all about Neil Pert," or you know, one of these brilliant. Technically astonishing drummers who play great stuff, but you talk to the drummers; they almost all will mention Ringo. Uh, There's all kinds of videos of of Dave Grohl or whoever, you know, Mm -hmm. saying we owe so much to Ringo. And certainly, when when drummers get to play with Ringo or watch Ringo play, you you can see they kind of there's a real level of astonishment. And still, to me, I mean, I saw Ringo play not that long ago, and um. You know, quite apart from his big concerts, he takes out his all-star band, which right. is always a great show. But I remember it was like Joe Walsh's birthday party in a restaurant, and Ringo got up and did Boys and, and I Want to Be Your Man. And, you know, the whole you could just feel the whole place kind of in awe, because it was just, oh, there he is playing exactly what he played and playing it brilliantly. And because you, 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 there's this weird mixture of real person and legend. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. mean, even though it was many years ago, I got to produce some tracks with Ringo for an album, and we, we I was talking about how, how good the drums sounded. I said that hi hat sounds really good, and he said, "Oh yeah, this is kind of an old one." And I said, how old? And he said, well, you know, like the Ed Sullivan show. <laughs> and all the other musicians in the studio were going, oh, my, oh my God. <laughs> God. <laughs> they wanted to bow down <laughs> to this hi-hat. You know, right? Because it is a thing of legend. Turingo was just a good-sounding hi-hat that he brought to the session.
0: Wow. Well, that's an interesting part of what you're doing these days in this recollection and reminiscence and vaunting of the Beatles. It is always... Legend separate from person because there was so much legend even when they were still young and playing together. Yes. The Paul is dead rumor.
1: Yeah, that was insane. And insane. I still get questions about that. And there's still there are still pockets of it that don't, won't give up. Like all conspiracy theories, yes. it's not gone. Yeah. I found one just the other day. Really? Because it this is a digression, but it actually ended up involving my father because my father was quite well-known as a physician. He wrote a lot of articles He's the guy who identified Munchausen syndrome. Oh, my. um, Which is an indication of his eccentricity because traditionally doctors name a new disease they identify after After themselves. themselves. And you get people going, who is Dr. Munchausen? It's like, no, that was my father, but he named it after the symptom, which is the storytelling of Baron Munchausen. Anyway, he also used hypnosis in his practice um, quite unusually at the time, a therapeutic use of hypnosis, and wrote a paper about that. So I found this bit in a, in a conspiracy site where they're going, no, it's all Paul really is dead, and it's this guy Billy Shears and all this oh, crazy stuff. Oh, Billy Shears, stuff. yeah. Of course, all this crazy stuff, and that that I'm the person who knows all the, the inside story. Where he's buried, <laughs> yeah. And that other people were dealt with by my father who used hypnosis. To erase the memory of this switch from. So my father is now involved. My, my father, who's been dead for many years, uh, is involved in the conspiracy theory as, because they found that he wrote these papers about hypnosis. they went, ah, uh, that, that's how it was done. So weird. now we know. I can now confirm all that is totally true.
0: <laughs> <laughs> was your father also responsible for two Darren's on the show, Bewitched? He must oh, have been.
1: I would think so, they yes. Switched. Almost certainly yes. Yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. There was no switch. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and,
1: and they probably are dead, unfortunately. Yeah, they probably <laughs> are.
0: So so the legend, how did you you all got famous at the same time, but how did you deal with and how did they deal with that thing, that thing that I, I think of fame as almost like a Siamese twin to somebody. Yes. Here I am, and here is my fame, and I can't, I can't leave it at home. It doesn't leave my side.
1: Well, that's true. I mean, I think the Beatles had endured a level of fame that none of us will ever conceive of again. I mean, it was, it was just extraordinary. that because they did become legends at the same time as being real people, as you mm-hmm. say. In our case, you know, it, it was mostly kind of fun. I mean, it. Uh, I mean. It, when we first became famous uh you know it, it was it was the same moment we first came to america we first you know and and it was all so exciting you know we dreamt of coming to america as, as i talked about in the show it, people don't realize how much we idolized america from afar because it not only had the music it had everything else that we didn't have you know it had food and cars and 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 all the things that we Mm -hmm. Hullabaloo. Hullabaloo. Go go dancers. Go go dancers. All great. And, you know, I mean, I was at one, you know, it, it was a very quick transition, too. I was a philosophy student. You know, I was so I would have been in the afternoon in the winter. I'd have been bicycling back from King's College London to my home at four in the afternoon in the dark, right. in the rain. Right, you know. And a year later, I was driving down Sunset Boulevard in a rented Mustang convertible, being recognized by beautiful women. And I went in the this, sun. This is considerably better. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, this is an improvement. Yeah, and so. Fame, to us, was, was mostly fun because it was never too extreme. It was more like, aren't you, you know? Whereas if, if Paul McCartney walks into the lift, to this day, there's no aren't you. There's just like. <gasps> you know? Right. And that, and that must be very hard to live with. I, but he's figured out how to do it brilliantly and elegantly. And so has Ringo, you know? Yeah. Um, and just conduct themselves. They found a way to conduct themselves. I think it would be very hard. I mean, I was very happy. And now I've got this minimalist, you know, didn't you used to be a bit famous a long time ago? Thing which is just perfect, <laughs> you know. Well, because you can all, you know, it's 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 kind of fun, and you can go, yes, that was me, or or you can you know brush it off, or what? But but the kind of unavoidable, intensive, almost oppressive fame that the Beatles had and still have uh, must be tough.
0: Well, yeah, you know, sometimes I see pictures of the press. You see, let's say, Meghan Markle or Princess Catherine, Kate, and you see them close up, but then occasionally somebody will print a picture of what the whole knot of paparazzi looks like, Mm -hmm. and you realize that that one picture that you see is... Leaving out the maybe seventy-five or eighty photographers who are never more than six feet away from them.
1: Exactly. So it must and, be. And then when you get to the Beatles, yes, those seventy-five people, they want to have their picture taken with Paul McCartney as well. It's the you know you actually see that happen that this this photographer who's seen everything, done everything, met everyone, and isn't interested in the royal family or whatever. Right. If a Beatle shows up. He's gonna try and get a picture with, with with Paul. So it's a it's a it's a different level.
0: It yeah. is a different level. I went to a listening party once at Capitol Records and yeah. it was very exciting to be in the building and it was for one of Paul's solo yeah. albums and I was supposed to write about Paul for Parade magazine. And he and Linda were running very late. So they played the album many times over and I was sitting you know at a table with other Music writers, and I wasn't a music writer. I was just a general reporter, and um, everybody was being very cool and very judgy. And oh, Paul sold out and live and let die, (laughs) and oh my God, and you know Linda can't sing and so on. I alone in my thrill, my pre-ecstasy that I was going to actually (laughs) meet Paul. Then they walk in finally. And from out of their pockets, somehow emerge guitars, record albums. They wanted him to sign every possession they had, exactly. and this cool yes. just disappeared the second he wanted. Exactly, in.
1: exactly. That's my point. Exactly. You're quite right.
0: And they were journalists for such hard hitting uh, publications as the Sam Goody In House Organ. <laughs> 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 I always, I always thought that was quite funny. Um, the the invasion happened yes england became cool carnaby street jean shrimpton yeah mary quant uh, all of that, and all the funny, of that, Twiggy, Twiggy, um,
1: who, you know, who's, who's a great friend of ours and and is wonderful and and uh, who just was made a dame, you know, a couple of years uh, ago. Oh, that's She's, so great. She is Dame Twiggy, and which you're is so cool.
0: And you're a commander of I'm the British
1: a C, CBE. Th- yeah. Dame CBE. is Dame is uh, higher up than me. Dame is the female equivalent of a knighthood.
0: I know, but yeah. there's still time. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah.
1: Oh, always. One, always. One, one can dream. <laughs> yes, exactly.
0: And the silly thing is,
1: you know, those things do mean a lot, but. The, even even though it's totally meaningless in any real sense. You know, people go, well, what do you get? And you go, well, you get to be a
0: singer, <laughs> that's it. Yeah, and but you, you a, also... You a nice
1: piece of bling.
0: But what are you going to do with a Grammy once you've won it? Exactly. It's yep. a nice thing.
1: It's a nice thing. It sits on my desk. Exactly. How many?
0: How many? Three. Yeah, that's nice.
1: Because I was lucky enough to win the producer of the year one twice. And then I won the one with Robin, I... you know, for uh, best comedy album. Which was an Incredible.
0: unexpected one, yes, and and I should say that Peter and I know one another through our dear friend Robin, exactly and, so and Marcia yep. Williams, yeah, yep, yep. he was he was one of a kind.
1: I'll see Marcia uh, day after tomorrow when I get to San Francisco.
0: Oh, excellent, yeah. well, they and she was his great muse. Yes. Should be said.
1: I absolutely believe that. Yeah. And she, when we did the album, she was, Marsha was a key element of that. She was immensely helpful.
0: Well, I loved how in the video that you showed in your show, Mm -hmm. which, and and the show is filled with wonderful uh, documentary evidence of a life well lived and very productive, Mm -hmm. those sweet pictures of Marsha laughing in the audience. Yes,
1: exactly. You can see Marsha and Wendy (laughs) sitting there. It it was great. Yes.
0: It's fantastic. Um, the art of producing yes. an album. Mm-hmm. A lot of us don't know exactly what that means. It doesn't mean that you're just pushing buttons. No. It really it, means that you have a, a concept for the sound of... Yes. It, it,
1: yeah. and, and what you say is interesting because, of course, we producers often don't know what other producers do either. Uh-huh. Very rarely do we get to watch each other working. But... It, and, and and what it is varies enormously. I mean, you, you're working. You could be with, a
0: songwriter, could right?
1: Be. So you're working with the artist, to help them make the best record they possibly could. Now, in some cases, they get very involved. You know, like with Linda Ronstadt, for example, I was never in the studio working on a record without her. I don't think. I mean, she would occasionally leave something and go and do whatever. But, but generally speaking, she wanted, she was involved from beginning to end. We would talk through how, what kind of record we wanted to make of this particular song. Whereas when I did records with Cher, for example, she liked to come in when everything was done. You know, just sing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because she was in the middle of a, a billion things. I remember right. we were working on that, Version we did of it's in his kiss for, oh
0: yes, film, for the movie for mermaids the movie mermaids yeah right,
1: which ended up being a big hit, but she you know uh, came in i'd done the track everything, and you know, luckily she liked it, it was just scary and, <laughs> and she did did a few vocal takes and and I said okay when she'd done her homework, She sang the song great, she works very hard and and then she, I said, I think we have it. You know, give me a minute and I'll let me piece it together. And she went, okay. So she goes out into the lounge and there's like the guy who designed the perfume bottle, the woman with the new oh. fitness video, some, <laughs> some person with a script they're trying to sell She's doing all this other stuff, you know. And then I said, you know, I think we've got it. Do you, do you want to come and listen? She went, no, just underline the bits you want me to sing again and I'll sing them again. So it varies from total participation, which isn't to say Cher doesn't have a clear musical idea. She does, but she leaves it to you. With Linda, it, it was much of a, more of a direct full-time collaboration. But the answer is there are musical aspects to it because you get to choose the musicians who work on it. Obviously, even in the beginning, choose what songs you're going to do mm-hmm. in conjunction with the artist. Decide mm-hmm. how you're going to do those songs, how it's supposed to sound, You know what kind of orchestration, or if any, you're going to do, and all that stuff. And then, in many respects, I often explain that I think a, a producer's job is knowing when to stop. And that's a general instruction, but for specific areas, because if you're doing a bunch of takes of a song, you've got to know when you know, you, you pass you the put, point of no return. if you stop and go a good take, there's something wrong. you know you need to change the arrangement or change a musician, or, or maybe the song sucks in the first place, or something. you know and if if people start doing overdubs, which now is you know you can do to infinity and beyond right, right. somebody has to go. You know, that's enough. You're backing off, you know. And nowadays it becomes technical as well. It's people who just think another three plugins will fix the sound, where they usually you're better off starting off taking off the eight ones you've already put on. Mm-hmm. So, in every case, uh, when artists do their vocals, they can get carried away trying to make it so perfect that you lose a certain emotional factor that an early take may have had. So, and the same with the mix. You know, at every stage, yeah. somebody has to try and maintain some objectivity and go. That I think it's done. You know, um, I, I think you're you're going downhill now, and and uh, that is a, a function of the producer and the artist and. Of course, there are diplomatic and psychological aspects to it as well, because especially in the old days when you had a bunch of musicians playing at once, which is not as common as it used to be, there was obviously a collaborative and psychological aspect that is terribly important. Everyone Uh, has to feel good about what they're doing.
0: The term concept album, is that every album? Or is that when the whole album from the cover art, if that still exists, to the sound, to the the team Mm -hmm. to the title is all of one piece
1: well it's an interesting question i would say the real answer is that now every album probably is a concept album because the only reason you're making an album is if you have a concept it used to be you were making an album because that is the package in which music was always delivered right you had no choice right but there's nothing magical about what used to be 45, 50 minutes when it was vinyl and became an hour and 10 when it was CDs. Th- those are just accidental numbers. But so the, the album existed as a concept and you fitted your music into it. But now, unless you have an album concept in your head... Why even think in those terms? Because nowadays The business doesn't can, require no, an can, album. You can make music in chunks of any size. Mm-hmm. You can put out what they call a single and say it's four minutes so it's a single. You can you can put you know, you can do anything. Right. And and only people who specifically intend it to come out on vinyl, for example, even think in album terms. A lot of artists now just put out some new music and it doesn't matter how long it is or what you call it. So the only reason to invoke the name album actually is if you have a concept which is album sized for some particular reason. People forget, you know, that each of those things had a technical origin. Right. You know, there's nothing magic about 20 minutes. I mean, I, when, even when I was starting to sequence CDs. I would still find myself, you know, around the middle of the CD going, we really need to put a strong track here. And of course, what I'm thinking is beginning of side two.
0: Well, right. In my head. Right.
1: That's still stuck there, you know.
0: Well, if you grew up playing records, that is a kind of timing that you understand it's exactly. like opening of second act second act number
1: precisely so right. side one side two was a thing and yet, it was like, a thing there's also an interesting aspect to it which is a bit more nerdy which is that the sequencing of, the
0: order i was just gonna say that but the
1: sequencing is influenced by technological factors as well oh it is which people forget it is when you're doing vinyl because you could get much more oomph and much more fidelity on your outside tracks than you can on your inside tracks
0: no way I, I, even the, though i even though you tend to scratch that first yes, track because if you didn't exactly. have a great stereo
1: well a, te- a brief brief but boring technical discussion but you'll 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 understand immediately what i'm saying you know how with the higher the tape speed the more fidelity you get right, right. the more space you have to record on right. just like high res digital right well records go at a fixed rotation speed. It's 33, 33 revs third, per minute. Right. So if you think about the speed of the needle in the groove, linear, it's much higher on the outside. Oh, of course. One revolution is, like, you know, It's like two, driving two a sports feet car. On the right. inside, one revolution is six inches. So, so you, 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 if you put some, like, big disco-y track on the inside, yes. your mastery engineer would go, please, please, can we move that so I can do it justice? So wow. you'd actually end up tending to put slightly wimpier songs on your, at the end of Side 1 and Side 2.
0: Who knew? That well, he, is he, great. He knew in the he booth. Knew he knew in the booth. <laughs> Jimmy knew. Hey, Peter, um, do you still buy records? No. No,
1: no, I've I haven't got any vinyl. I didn't keep anything, and I didn't buy anything. I'm 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 very bad at that, unfortunately. I gave lots of stuff away, which I mean, is
0: weird because you have the the piece of paper that Paul wrote down in lyrics. a world without. I Love. do have that. Yes, you have that. You have great pictures <coughs> in your archives. You, I I was going to suggest that you kept everything, but no,
1: unfortunately, I didn't. And a lot of those pictures we found. You know, I knew of of them and nowadays you can keep poking around and finding a better copy and things like that. So no, I didn't. And of course, I had a very low number white album and all kinds of like super precious things that that make me cry when I think that I don't know what happened to them. You know, you move, you pack, you unpack, things are gone. So no, I was never, unfortunately, a keeper.
0: Oh, boy. And and in terms of listening now, when you listen for pleasure and not for work, are you listening to to digital. digital
1: absolutely i mean high res if it's if it's if it's around mm-hmm. but i'll listen to an mp3 if i have to but but digital yes absolutely
0: um before we get to your five favorite yeah, things sure. i just want to tell you that i was the first maybe the second concert i ever went to by myself was james taylor and carol king at and joe mama
1: yes that's right
0: at Madison yes. Square Garden. Which was Danny
1: Korchmar's band, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Joe Mama was Danny. It was great. Yes, they were great, yeah.
0: And that was a meaningful, meaningful night in my life. And I did believe that James Taylor was singing to me. Just, Just a side note. Oh, he probably was. And I was singing to him, <laughs> as was everybody. Yes.
1: No, James is a, an amazing writer and an, and an equally amazing performer. He, he gets that with an audience. He could play a big place like that and make everyone feel like they were in his living room and he was looking them in the eye. No question.
0: Incredible. And would you just briefly tell our listeners about the something in the way she moves and the something in the way she moves? Because you talk Several times in the Beatles from A to Z, how admiring musicians borrow phrases yeah, they do. They do. and borrow even musical phrasing. Yes, they do. So James Taylor and George Harrison came up with that sort of at yeah. the same time. But well, jo- I mean, no, James jo- came up James with first. James first, there's right? No
1: question. And he'd written the song mm-hmm. "Something in the Way, in the way She way Moves,", moves right. uh, which is a great, amazing Beautiful. song, still mm-hmm. one of you know an in concert favorite for James fans and so on. And George use that line of lyric in, i mean i think in something his was his, called something he called his song something whereas logically when you, if you first heard george's song you'd go obviously it's called something, something in, the in the way she, way she moves. moves yeah um and yeah, I mean, I, he, he may, for all we know, have intended to eventually replace it. That happens a lot. You start writing a song with a, a borrowed line or a, a temporary line, and it just kind of becomes the line. Uh-huh. And I think George liked it, and he used it. And the great thing is, of course, he used it to make a completely different and entirely amazing and, and great beautiful. and hit um. song.
0: Both of those songs are are exquisite.
1: And as James did point out at one point in James's song, Something in the Way She Moves, Let's Not Forget, one of the verses ends with the words and I feel fine. Yes. So so (laughs) you never know. You you nod. (laughs) It's a
0: hat trick. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. And no thank you.
1: Exactly. No thank you.
0: Well, Peter, this has been a, a treat and I could talk to you for hours and may may well do happy s- any time sometime yes. yes but it's come to the time where we're going to talk about the five things that make your life better okay okay number 1 family
1: I mean, I'm sure this is a, a a common one, but I do have a wonderful wife and a great daughter, and I enjoy their company very much. And it's it's you know it's all the cliches about family somebody you know you can rely on in the crunch, someone you can, you know, share ideas and thoughts and concerns with, and and uh, sometimes get sympathy, sometimes not. You know, but, <laughs> but you kind of hope that you get what you deserve, you know, and you get what helps at the time. Yes. And I I cannot imagine life without them for sure. For sure. And then my number two. Was science. That's fantastic. <laughs> but I mean that, of course, because in the most literal sense, if it were not for science, first of all, I'd be dead. Yes. You know, because the life expectancy pre science was something 50 or whatever. You
0: 35. Know? Very yeah. likely, yeah. Yeah.
1: So, so on, it made my life better, it made my life exist. You know, at this I point. always
0: think, because I'm very nearsighted, I always think if not for the invention of optometry, oh, I awesome. would have been. Dead, you know, as a exactly. child, I would have been run over. Exactly. Not right. to
1: mention the electric light and the. Oh, that helps. You know, all yeah. the stuff. So. Uh, particularly in this age, where there is this worrying interest in mumbo jumbo in general, you know, right. when you actually hear people seriously talking about their their astrological chart or or their homeopathic medicine or, or their or, aura, or their aura, you know, all this horrifying nonsense. And <laughs> and so I think it's incredibly important now, more than ever, to to point out that science is, is what's made us who we are today, and science is what's going to save us, if anything is, you know, I it's agree. certainly not prayer and and homeopathic medicine so something will and thoughts that, and you know, prayers thoughts and prayers yeah and science of course is also just so incredibly interesting you know you start reading about you know the new quantum theories and stuff and you go wow brain science is so you know it's oh so gosh. much more fascinating and bizarre than anything that people have made up since so I, I take science extremely seriously
0: I appreciate that. And also, your number three, what would we be without that?
1: Music, exactly. Which is not, of course, unrelated to science and mathematics. And I tend to love music that is actually quite symmetrical. You know, I love Bach and, you know, I love, and I like pop records and because they both follow a certain structural plan that, you know, you sort of know where you're going, you know. Oh, we're in the bridge. Oh, this is the second movement. Right. We've changed keys and, you know. Um but I also like some music that is more directly emotional and not so, not so organized. But my instinct is towards somewhat organized music, you know. And and I I love listening to it. And and it does, it can change your mood completely without anything else, you know.
0: It really is. The I don't most like evocative. background music much. I don't oh, usually yeah. have
1: music uh, playing. You know, I, when I walk into restaurants and there's music playing, I generally hate it because it's like all it does is make people talk louder. You know, right. I'd, I'd rather just have hear the talking, or stop and play me a really good record, and then we'll have
0: lunch. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> you know the other thing that's interesting about science and music is so many people who are drawn to medicine and science are also musicians.
1: Yes, absolutely. I well, mean, a huge I, overlap. Uh, uh, Oliver Sachs was an excellent pianist. You know, there got, you go. I got to know Oliver. Again, through Robin, of course. Of course. Because Oliver was so thrilled when he discovered in that movie that he was being played by someone as brilliant as he was. Yes. Oliver was also a student of my father's, by the way.
0: You're kidding. I had no idea. When I
1: met Oliver through Robin, he then told me that my father was the most brilliant physician he'd ever met. So that was good enough for me.
0: And Oliver Sacks was himself a genius. Uh, There's
1: no question. No question. No, that that was, when he told me that, I went,
0: wow. Wow! Part of the conspiracy <laughs> exactly. theory, <laughs> exactly. Wow! Um, no, th- yeah, it oh, was, that, uh, that gives me goosebumps.
1: No, Oliver was extraordinary, and he was he was very keen on my father. My, there's a book of my father's writings that Oliver wrote, the little forward blurb uh, thing too. Wow. Um, Number four. Number four is language. And I, because I'm not in any sense a linguist. I don't speak other languages except for schoolboy French. But I love words. I love language. I love well-structured sentences. I find joy in listening to great language. I mean, it's just like, even when you listen to Shakespeare, you know, and I'm not the world's biggest Shakespeare fan in that I'm, in that I'm still often listening to a play go, What is he talking about? What is he actually saying? Can someone translate? <laughs> but but if you don't think about that and you just listen to the language, it's extraordinary. And and I love this extremely simple language as well. I was watching a documentary on the plane that someone had given me that they'd made about Harold Pinter. Uh-huh. And they were I was watching a scene from The Room, which was his first play. And I was laughing out loud on the plane because it was just so brilliant and so elegantly done. And, and so you know, spare. And so spare. The opposite of Shakespeare. You know, a few words. It was all about whether it was up, up, is it upstairs or is it downstairs? Some conversation. And I, it was hilarious and, and brilliant and exciting. And I also love words. You know, I love, I love etymology. I love figuring out, you know, where words came from and how and what they mean. And every now and then you come across a new word. You mm-hmm. know. Um, I read a, a novel the other day and uh, a year or so ago, and now I've forgotten the name of the novel, but it's really good. Um, and the word dithyrambic, which I didn't know. And I went, oh, that's a good one. Dithyrambic. dithyrambic, D I T H Y R A M B I C.
0: Well, it must have something to
1: do with cadence. It does. Yeah, it's 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 a a cadence in a in a poem or a piece of music that's exceptionally emotional, particularly in honor of Dionysus with <gasps> dithyrambic. So wow. and I and I confess that I saved it up and it's in the book. Ah! You'll find dithyrambic Man, I got to use that one. Now, uh, I love the way words sound, you know? Yes, like Weird words that means very sometimes mean something very similar to a word we already
0: know. You know, I really really there are some words that elude me I try to use the word feckless and I never can come up with feckless
1: yeah it's I. it's a tough one to precisely define right but it's it's an important one yeah it's I like impo- I like feckless yeah um, yeah that's a very good one
0: I sometimes have a little mental list of words I want to include in what i'm writing exactly
1: that's what i did exactly and and then of course there's the Humpty Dumpty approach which is different you remember that in he says whenever i use a word it means exactly what i tell it to mean neither more nor less (laughs) and 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 alice goes you know but you can't just do that you can't you can't just choose and he he said oh yes you can it's just a question of who is going to be master (laughs) And I love that concept. Yes, you know. Though I tend to figure out what words mean rather than tell them what to mean, but I, but I do like that idea. I
0: do like that idea. Um, I've noticed also that people who've learned English as a second or third language—not all of them, but many of them—use the structure. That classical sentence structure better than those of us who
1: absolutely. Well, I think take was it, it for granted. Was it Nabokov who, who oh, yes. wrote in English brilliantly and brilliantly and, um, and Joseph December- Conrad? Joseph Conrad, exactly. No, I think you're right. If you learn it correctly, and I love that. I mean, I did try in the book. I tried to keep it as conversational as I could. It's it, totally I a conversation. Tried to make it grammatically right. Yes,
0: but but I should say, and I apologize for not saying this earlier, it's a conversation between you and Beatles appreciators, yes, and people who are new to the Beatles. If if there are those, you know, it is it is a a conversation in which you don't stand much higher than we do, and that's really nice. Oh well, thank you. Yes, I'm glad it comes across that way. It does. And number five, Peter. Number five was
1: me, um, because I f- realize how fortunate I am that I do enjoy my own company, and I, I, it dawns on me that some people don't terribly. That they, you know, that if they're not with somebody, they feel odd or I mean, lonely. F- lonely. And I don't. I, I you know, there's people I love to spend time with, of course, but at the same time, if I'm alone. And I I can talk to myself quite happily, and occasionally do out loud, like a, like a <laughs> lunatic. But but I'm I'm entirely happy left to my own devices, and and I think I do make myself happy. You know, I was trying to think, well, what makes me happy? And I go, well, I kind of do it myself. And when you talking about the book being a conversation. It is, as you describe, a conversation between me and the fans. It also is, to some extent, a conversation between me and me. Yes. You know? Yes. I am, Rem-
0: remember this. It and- is
1: me thinking out loud, going, yes. oh, you know what? What about that? And, you, and me replying, oh, yeah, this bit happened, too, you know? So so I, that's why I put my my last thing that makes me happy was uh. presumptuous enough to, to include myself. No. Because I but- do find myself generally happy and most of the time. And... And I think that's one of the reasons. And if I'm, you know, I, I can happily sit by myself and just think for a while and, and be fine.
0: I I I find you delightful company too. And well, thank, you. thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, no, it's, it's been great. It's a pleasure. And I would just like to say before we finish that you've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better. I'm your host, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Peter Asher, C B E legendary record producer and performer, radio show host of From Me to You on Sirius XM's The Beatle Channel, Beatles Channel, and the author of an alphabetical mystery tour, The Beatles from A to Z. You can follow Peter on his website at Peterashermusic.com. And he will be on tour with his show in January. Yes,
1: there's a bunch of dates in January.
0: And they will be on his website and they will be on my website, too, at com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, YouTube, and iHeartRadio. And if there's another place, try that, too. My blog is at Lisabirnbach.com where you'll find links and photos that refer to everything in today's program. This podcast is produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Jimmy Regan. My team espresso, Ruchi Michael Port, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. Until next week, stay warm and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.